Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. When I was younger, as a young teenager, our family bought a dog. And since some in our family are allergic to pet dander, this was a special dog. This dog was hyperallergenic, which meant that it did not shed as much as other dogs, therefore making it possible for one with allergies to live with them. And some of you have hyperallergenic dogs as well. We named the dog Rufus. Rufus was a Cocker Spaniel Poodle mix, which not only made it a hyperallergenic dog, but supposedly it was supposed to be a smarter dog than the average breed. Rufus was not a bad dog, but he had one problem. He liked to escape our home and roam the neighborhood. Rufus was fine if we consistently watched him, but times that we had people over to our home seemed to be the times that he was most successful in escaping out of the back door. On more than one occasion, if we became overly focused on our guests walking through our door, Rufus would sneak out either the open back door or the front door and would take the liberty of showing himself around the entire neighborhood. The bottom line, when our family became overly focused on the guests walking through our front door, we ran the risk of losing the one living inside our home through our back door. Unfortunately, this story is an example of some churches today. Some churches become heavily focused on reaching new people, which is an aspect that absolutely must be prioritized, that they run the risk of losing the brethren. Now, in no way am I comparing our dog to people of any sort, but the principle behind the example rings, rings true. If we are not careful, the body of Christ can become overly consumed with those coming through the front door that it fails to reach the brethren that are exiting out the back door. As we close out our book this morning in this book of James, James gives us one final plea. So if you can take your Bibles with me and flip to James chapter 5 this morning as we close out this study in the book of James. At the beginning of summer, we began our journey through the book of James. The entire premise behind this book is a pastor writing to his former congregation to define genuine Christianity. The audience whom James is writing to is known as the diaspora. The diaspora were the Christian Jews that had dispersed throughout the region from Jerusalem because of increased persecution that occurred upon them in their homeland. James, who was their pastor in Jerusalem, writes this letter with the understanding that many of the Christians that had dispersed would become uh, heavily influenced by the false teachers. They were removed from the accountability of a pastor. And so James, understanding this, writes this letter with great love and zeal to be an encouragement to his former congregation. As we approach the final two letters, or the final two verses of this letter, James closes out with this thought to reveal really the overall intention of his entire letter. James assumes that his audience are followers of Christ, and so he directs this letter towards the Christians. James makes it clear of this in his opening statement in James chapter 1, verse 2, where he uses that word brethren there. But the undertones that James uses throughout this letter seems to indicate that he had many Christians that were drifting in the faith. And so it's with this one final, really, acknowledgement or admonishment, James delivers this plea for the drifting brother in verses 19 and 20. So if you could look down with me as we read these words from James. Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth, someone turns back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way 
will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. At the beginning of the message, I used the example of our dog Rufus, who was the great escape artist. When I was a younger boy, our family had another dog named Katie. Katie was a black lab, and she was nuts. You say, boy, Pastor, you sure didn't have a lot of luck with dogs. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. I didn't. Just like Rufus, Katie was a great escape artist. On one particular evening when our family had all gone to bed, Katie escaped out the back door. For whatever reason, it was left ajar, and she escaped. We assumed that everyone was in the home, all safe and sound, but little did we know Katie was experiencing the nightlife of our neighborhood. Seeing how I was in bed, as well as understanding the urgency of the situation, and I was, I was a young boy, I wasn't a teenager at this point, I jumped out of bed, simply put on a jacket, and headed outside. I called for Katie, but she did not listen. This new freedom that Katie was experiencing was so liberating that she felt the need to ignore my call. In haste, I followed Katie through our yard, across our neighbor's yard, and found myself right in the middle of Main Street, and nothing more than a jacket, my flip-flops, and my underwear. Cars were beeping at me. They were swerving around Katie and myself, and Katie stood right in the middle of the road, frozen. But the fact that I was in harm's way, tired, stressed, and standing in nothing more than I, my underwear did not matter at that particular moment. Why? Because part of our family had wandered away and found themselves in great danger. Me, as a young boy, understanding the danger that awaited Katie, acted out of this sense of urgency to save her and bring her back. And in the end, Katie's life was spared. In our text this morning, we see a sense of great urgency from James. When churches today are urging the people to reach the loss, which again is an absolute high priority, James inserts a reminder, don't forget about the drifting Christian. Our goal this morning is to define and describe what it means when a brother wanders from the truth and determine how we can lovingly steer them back. The title of the message this morning is When a Brother Goes Astray. Over the past year and a half, COVID-19 has not only had tremendous effects on our economy, it has had profound effects upon the church. Many churches have lived in fear rather than sound wisdom when it comes to dealing with COVID-19. And in response, many churches have shut their doors to their community. I was on a phone call earlier this week with a lady who attends one of the churches here in Chapel Hill, and she began to tear up as she understood the reality that her church was not going to have typical Christmas services this year that she so longed and desired to be a part of. During a time when our community desperately needs hope, perhaps more than ever before, many churches are closing their doors. Many churches have lost their sense of urgency. And to make matters even more urgent, the gap between practicing Christians and non-practicing Christians continues to widen in the wrong direction. The Barna Group did a recent study between Christians and non-practicing Christians. Now, they do define practicing Christians as this, individuals that strongly agree that faith is very important in their lives and have attended church at least once within the past month. And to find, they defined the non-practicing Christians as individuals that are self-identified Christians. You've met them before. They claim to be a Christian, but they do not agree that faith is necessarily important in their life, and they do not attend church. Upon their research, the Barna Group found that the practicing Christian segment is now much smaller when in comparison in 2000. 
In 2000, 45% of the entire sample qualified as practicing Christians. In 2020, just 25% qualify as practicing Christians. When determining the reason for the drastic increase, the Barna Group found that half of the practicing Christians fell away from consistent faith engagement, essentially becoming non-practicing Christians, while the other half moved into the non-Christian segment. The Barna Group also adds that this shift has contributed to the growth of the atheistic agnostic segment, which has nearly doubled in size over the past several years. Now, I understand that there are numerous different variables to the statistics regarding the definition of a Christian. Some professing Christians were never Christians to begin with. I get all of that. But many agree that the drifting brethren is increasing at an alarming rate. And so, therefore, this poses the question, what do we as a church, do about it. When delivering this plea, James first begins with this objective. This objective really is the call of action, and after delivering the objective, he then gives this outcome of what happens when the objective is followed. So first off, let's look at the objective that James gives. James begins verse 19 with this statement, Brethren, if any among you... That word, any among you, suggests those that are involved in the drifting process are those that profess to be believers within the church. These are individuals that once attended the local body of believers, ones that consistently sat in the pews, prayed with other believers, claimed to be followers of Christ, but are now missing in action. Now let me add that just because a person is still attending church does not mean that that person has not drifted. Notice what James says here to further clarify. James says, if any, any among you, what, wanders from the truth. James does not say, if any among you quits coming to church. A lack of church attendance is certainly an indication of spiritual regression and not spiritual progression. But church attendance is necessary for spiritual growth. But James makes it clear that church attendance is not an automatic indicator of spiritual growth. He says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and so with this statement, we must ask, what is truth? What is truth? In John chapter 18, Jesus is standing before trial, before Pontius Pilate. Pilate, who was not a Jew, heard all the different claims of Jesus' own people, the Jews. He turns to Jesus and asks, are you the king of the Jews, whom he claimed to be? Pilate further questions Jesus by stating, Your own nation and people have turned against you and delivered you unto me. What have you done to them for this to happen? Jesus responds back to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Well, Pilate, being confused by the answer that Jesus gives, further prods Jesus. Pilate responds, Are you a king then? And it's in this response that Jesus delivers to Pilate that we find our definition of truth that James is referencing. Jesus responds back to Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 37, You say rightly that I am a king. But for this cause was I born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth, that everyone who hears my voice would understand truth. Jesus said that he came to bear witness to the truth. Now, if Jesus needed to bear witness to the truth, then this indicates that mankind was fooled by a lie, does it not? If there was no lie, then there would be no need to reveal the truth. In Genesis chapter 3, we read the account of man. 
the tool that Satan used to cause man to fall was deception. And deception at its very foundation is a lie. That's what a deception is. When Eve was approached by Satan about the tree of the garden, Eve responded, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So after hearing this response, Satan replied back to Eve, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what's happening in this narrative here? Eve believed the lie that she no longer needed God. The fall of man all began with man's rejection of the truth. So when Jesus said, for this cause was I born, for this cause I have come into the world that I shall bear witness to the truth, that truth as defined by Jesus is the gospel. So going back to James, when James says or talks about someone wandering from the truth, he is referring to someone that has wandered from the life-changing truth of the gospel. He's not talking about losing their salvation, but losing the beauty of the gospel and what it does for us as Christians. If we ever want change, we have to remind ourselves of this significant power and freedom that only the gospel brings. But there's another question here. If they've wandered from the truth, which is the gospel, what does wandering from the truth look like then? If somebody comes to church, but they may be wandering, how do I know what a wandering brother looks like? Wandering from the truth all begins with deception. Even Christians are deceived by a distortion of the gospel. I've oftentimes made this statement to the believers, uh, to the struggling believers, and the kids actually learned this this morning in Pilgrim's Progress. But once a person receives Christ, we understand that Satan can no longer prevent that person from entering into the kingdom of God. We are sealed, the Bible talks about that, by the Holy Spirit. But that does not mean that Satan stops pursuing the Christian. Satan will do whatever he can to prevent the Christian from making an impact for the kingdom of God. And the way that he does that is by causing them to drift from the truth of God's word. A drifting Christian from the truth of the gospel occurs when a Christian adopts a view of doctrine that contradicts the, the primary view or the truth of the gospel. I'm not talking about secondary or tertiary doctrinal issues such as the timeline of the tribulation or other eschatological views or church polity. Those are not foundational doctrines to salvation. There's room for disagreement there when it comes to the gospel. A Christian brother or sister that wanders from the truth becomes confused by the gospel. This drifting away typically manifests itself through a lack of church attendance or involvement, a lack of faith in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, an entertainment of decisions and actions that contradict the nature and character of God, and a general lukewarmness to the elements of genuine Christianity. James describes this all the way back in chapter 1, verse 14. James says, Let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am tempted by God. For God cannot tempt anyone by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Drifting occurs when a person forgets about the wonderful beauty of God's grace and becomes distracted by the deceitful pleasures of God's word. This is why the beauty of the gospel must permeate every single message that we preach here at the chapel. God's entire word, both the Old and the New Testament, if you were to read the entire book together, it all has one single narrative, and that is God's pursuit of man and the introduction of the beauty of 
the gospel. The author of Hebrews states in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, this hope that we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. The hope we have is the gospel. But let's suppose we identify a brother that is drifting. We know that he's drifting from the truth. How then does a Christian turn a wandering brother back to the truth? How do they turn him back? Grab their hands and drag him to church? Sometimes there's probably an element to that. That's not ultimately going to change your heart. How do we address it? Maybe you're thinking of someone this morning that professes to be a believer, but they are certainly drifting away. You pray for them, but is there anything else we can do to encourage them to come back? James does not tell us how to do that in these first two verses here. But there are numerous passages in Scripture that tell us how. First off, this is what we have to remember. We must remember that bringing a brother back always requires grace always requires grace. James commands the listeners in Matthew chapter 7 to judge not that you be not judged. As we discussed this past Wednesday, this verse is oftentimes taken out of context to get people off their backs. Jesus is not making a command against making judgments. He is commanding against judgmentalism. Jesus goes on to say in that same scripture reference there in Matthew chapter 7, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Jesus says, you hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. Then you will see clearly how to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus does not say, do not confront. Jesus says, confront with a spirit of grace, understanding that we are all on this journey together. And so we bring back our Christian brother that is wandering, that is straying in grace. Secondly, we bring back our brother to the truth. We don't bring him back to church. We bring him back to the truth. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, completely equipped for every good work. These two verses precede the command that is given at the very beginning of chapter 4. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. The only thing that will bring about life change is the power of the gospel. When it comes to addressing our drifting brother, we do so in this truth of God's word, not our opinion, because that won't mean anything. We bring him back to this uh, to the truth through grace. But thirdly, though, we do it with the attitude and the motivation of love. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore one back into the spirit of gentleness. One commentator describes the word gentleness this way in this passage. He says, A humble and a gentle attitude that is patiently submissive in every offense while having no desire for revenge or retribution. This is love. Once again, God commands us to judge, but do so for the sake of bringing the brother back to truth of Christ, but do so in love. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul continues, and he adds a disclaimer to that. He says, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one to gentleness. And then he adds this, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. What is Paul saying here? You restore that person in love, but do so in grace, understanding that if you do it in a prideful way, not being aware of your surroundings, you also will be tempted and through your pride fall into the same trap that your Christian brother 
has fallen into. We pursue them in grace. We confront them with the truth, and we do it in the motivation of love. We pray that God's grace, our drifting brother, comes back to the truth. And when that happens, James then gives us this objective. When we bring back the Christian brother, he, includes, he concludes with this, the outcome. This is what he says. James assures us of two different outcomes when it comes to bringing back our drifting brother. Both outcomes really serve as an overarching motivation to our confrontation. If we are honest, no one likes to confront someone. We must understand that confrontation is very rarely received with open arms. I've never gone to someone and confronted them in love, and they said, thank you so much for doing so. I love you so much. They've never told me that right away. It's not necessarily gone over well, but it is the right thing to do. James gives us two outcomes really to provide an encouragement for us because he recognizes the fact that if you confront someone, it's going to be difficult. So the first thing that he says here is that when you do so and they turn back, you save a soul from death. James says in verse 20, let him that who turns, let him know who turns away a sinner from the air of his way that he will save a soul from death. What exactly does James mean here? What is he referring to here? Many commentators, if we're honest, are split on what exactly this means. Some commentators believe this is referred to a spiritual death that results in eternal separation from God. This conclusion is drawn from the fact that James uses soul in relation to death. Other commentators state that this is in reference to a death-like existence for believers. The Bible indicates that unrepentant sin can squelch the spiritual vitality of any Christian, not severing a believer's relationship with the Father, but hindering the fellowship with God. John exhorts us in 2 John verse, or chapter 1, verse 8, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. John is referencing the believers being held captive by the false teaching of the false prophets. John urges the Christians to remain faithful so they do not miss out on the rewards of a faithful servant. I understand both viewpoints here. See, on one hand, one viewpoint that says that that death means eternal separation from the Father is in reference to that person really actually being an unbeliever. Because if you fall into sin and you cannot be eternally separated from the Father, if you are a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation if you are a Christian. I understand. I got that viewpoint. But I also understand the other side and the fact that there are Christians that do stray. And in their sin, in their guilt that they've been overcome and forgetting the truth of the gospel they have this some sort of like death-like existence because of their sin. Going back to Matthew chapter 13, we understand that there are many that profess to be followers of Christ, but very few are actually genuine followers of Christ. Matthew chapter 13, we understand the pair of the seeds well. There's four seeds. Three out of the four are phony Christians. There was the seed that fell by the wayside that was immediately snatched up and devoured by the birds. That seed represents those that hear the gospel, but don't listen to it, don't understand it. When it talks about the bird being snatched away, it's in reference to Satan snatching them away. There's the seed that fell in the stony places, and I see this oftentimes. It was planted in these shallow roots. It immediately sprang up, but the sun squelched it. That seed represents those that hear the gospel, listen to it, I would say understand it, make a profession out of emotion, and, but the moment that life gets hard, the moment that life gets difficult, they completely walk out on God. That shows that they were never genuine followers to begin with. You've seen somebody that's made a profession, they're excited. 
And then just about a month or a year or two later, they have no relationship with God. You have the third seed that fell in the stony place. I'm sorry, the third seed fell among thorns, was eventually choked out. This represents a person that makes a profession, but the lures of the world reveal that he never gave his life to Christ. And finally, you have the, you have the, the good seed that fell into the good ground. It takes root and it brings forth much fruit. We understand this represents a person that is genuinely saved. This seed supports the statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, that he who endures to the end shall be saved. Genuine Christianity will manifest itself through perseverance. And so when James, if James is talking about a soul, saving a soul from eternal death, he's speaking to the power of converting an originally professing Christian to genuine Christianity, indicating that they were never followers of Christ to begin with. And there absolutely are churches that are filled with professing Christians. The Bible refers to that as tares among the wheat. Those that are within the church that really aren't genuinely saved. Because we understand that going to church, being baptized, does not equate salvation. I want to make that absolutely clear. You cannot be grandfathered into heaven. Just because your mom or your dad might have been Christians or you've grown up going to church does not mean that you're a Christian. It has to be a personal decision in your relationship with the Lord to call upon Christ to be your Savior. It's a decision that you make between you and God. But on the other hand, if James is talking about a Christian brother who has grown cold to the truth of the gospel because of unrepentant sin, to bring them back not only prevents a premature physical death, it restores their spiritual vitality. The outcome of saving the soul from death supports what James says back in chapter 1. We read, chapter, we read verse 14 earlier, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. James then adds to that in verse 15, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When it is full grown, it brings forth death. So what is James saying? The result of unrepentant sin is death. You say, well, Pastor Brandon, which outcome is James referring to here? Is James referring to a spiritual death for unbelievers, or is he referring to a death-like existence for, for believers? I would say that the exact differentiation between the two is not something that we must consume our lives with because both meanings should create a great sense of urgency for our straying brother. None of us truly knows the heart of every person. We can be easily fooled into thinking that somebody's a follower of Christ all the way until past their death, Ravi Zacharias being an example of that. We didn't know of the man that he truly was until after he passed away. But here's the point that James is making here. Treat every straying brother with a great sense of urgency. Pursue them with the understanding that if they do not come back to Christ, they will die, either spiritually because they were not truly saved, or they will lose rewards as Christians because of their unrepentant sin getting in the way of God's command for faithfulness. Either way, we as Christians ought to pursue our straying brother for the very sake of their soul. James says not only is the outcome of saving their soul from death, James adds a second outcome, and that is a coverage of a multitude of sins. James concludes in verse 20, he says, Let him know that he who turns away a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This coverage here is in reference to the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. Once again, this is a reminder of the beauty of the gospel. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. This is clarifying Paul's purpose of the law. That was to condemn, to reveal the utter sinfulness of man. 
The law is not designed to save anyone or make man righteous, but to show man just how unrighteous he truly is. Paul goes on to say in that same verse, but where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. Adam's one act completely corrupted all of mankind. We call that sin. But Paul points out this, that Christ's one gift completely justifies those that choose to believe in the grace of God that is offered through Jesus Christ. When a person trusts Christ as his Savior, they are completely forgiven of all their sins. Paul says that as one offense completely condemns, one gift completely restores. So when James says that the outcome of a restored brother is this coverage of a multitude of sins, he is referring to God's grace and forgiving all the sins of that returned person. God does not keep a checklist of our sins. Because everything that needed to be redone in order to restore our faith or restore our relationship with the Father was done through Jesus Christ. Now, this certainly does not mean that confession is unnecessary. The unrepentant and drifting Christian has a responsibility of confessing their sin before God. But James tells us that when we agree with God about our sin through confession, God gives grace of forgiveness that fully and completely restores. This is perhaps no better, a better illustration regarding God's forgiveness and love of an unrepentant sinner than this parable of the prodigal son. So in closing this morning, I would like to take you, uh, if you could with me, take your Bibles and flip back to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is a parable that we are familiar with quite well. Even though we're familiar with it, though, very few understand the full implications Many assume that the parable of the prodigal son is talking about the restoration of an unbeliever to the relationship of the father through salvation. But upon further examination, this parable actually is not talking about that. This parable is talking about the restoration of a believer to the fellowship of the father. We understand this well. The son is overtaken with selfishness. He demands the father to give him his inheritance. Now, within that historical context, the only way that that son would receive his inheritance is upon the death of the father. So for the son to go to his father and say, Father, I demand my inheritance is basically like the son telling the father, I want you nowhere near my life. More or less, I wish you were dead. I want you no part of my life anymore. We understand how the story goes. The father grants the son that wish. The son takes the inheritance and he goes and he squanders it all on the frivolous activities of the world. James states beginning in verse 17, as the son was at the complete lowest point of his life, which is what sin will do as it goes unchecked. In verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself and said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The son justified in his mind that it would be far better because of the state of his life for him to go and be one of the servants of his father than to live the way he's living in his sin. That's brokenness. James continues in verse, or Jesus continues in verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father. But notice what happens next as you look in the narrative here. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him 
had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. Before the son could even get the words of repentance out to his father, the father saw his son coming back, knowing what his son was doing, and he ran to him and he met him. Remember what Jesus says, or remember what James promises back in James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He doesn't say draw near to God, get everything figured out, and then God will draw near to you. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. The son didn't even confess yet to his father, and his father runs to him and embraces him. I'm assuming completely overcome by emotion of the love of his father, the son then, probably in tears, says his father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, hey, bring out the best robe. Put it on him and put on a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring out the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The outcome of a repentant brother was this. It was a soul saved from death and a forgiveness that covers a multitude of sins. And that father didn't bring up or even ask what his son did with that money. He says, you're forgiven. In our churches today, we have a mission to reach the lost with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. But as James closes out this letter, he reminds us, and this is really the capital point of this entire letter, he reminds the church that we have a mission to reach out to the drifting brother. God is waiting to restore his fellowship with a child that is engrossed in unrepentant sin. In closing, James says, church, go get them. Go get them. So church, when it comes to our drifting brother, let's go get him. And let's guide him back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ.